today I'm doing a deep dive into one of my favorite movies, L.A. Confidential. This is Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie Podcast. movie friends and welcome to scott's self-indulgent movie podcast i am scott and today i am talking about la confidential which is one of my favorite movies and this is one i've been working on for a long time so it's likely going to be the longest episode i've ever done uh so i'm going to record it in steps probably add some backing music if i can and yeah i hope you enjoy this this is labored of love i wanted to do something at least relatively special for the 600th episode so yeah uh Without further ado, let's get started. I have a handful of movies that I consider game changers. Not movies that shaped cinema or broke new ground in the medium, though sometimes they do overlap, but movies that opened up a new side of movies to me. And one of those is Curtis Hansen's L.A. Confidential. The movie was initially released in 1997 to incredible critical acclaim, had a great box office showing, and was nominated for nine Academy Awards, winning two, one for Kim Basinger for Best Supporting Actress and Best Adapted Screenplay. But considering I was a young, impressionable teenager, I didn't see the movie for years later, after picking it up from my local library, after an Entertainment Weekly article listed it as the best DVD of 1998 while bitterly opining how it was a much better movie than Titanic, the movie that beat it out in every other Oscar category the year prior. And it was illuminating. While I had been watching movies on a regular basis for some time, particularly movies like Raiders of the Lost Dark or The Mummy or other PG and PG-13 action movies, this was the first classy movie I decided to watch. Admittedly, it helped that the movie is full of showy elements like sex, drugs, corruption, and violence, but it was also a movie about loyalty, justice, and in retrospect, a pretty cynical look at policing as a concept. And that appreciation has only grown over time, as I've had more time to piece together the clever filmmaking tricks, the performances, how it zigs and zags within its own genres, and how it even adapted much more sordid source material into something abrasive but still digestible, a cynical story with a glimmer of hope. Also, the first time I was watching this was with my mom, who watched it until the halfway point before realizing she had seen it before. And years later, when my siblings picked a bunch of movies from my collection that she they wanted to watch with her, she picked L.A. Confidential because she hadn't seen it before. It is one of my favorite running jokes in our house. It is also a movie that resonates even harder as more and more people are looking at the origins and rot at the roots of citywide police departments. That is hard to talk about because one of the lead actors is an admitted sex abuser. So today, I'm going to do a deep dive into one of my favorite and formative movies, and examine why it works as well as it does, what it has to say, and probably fail to cover everything I want to talk about, but still trying my damnedest. So with all of those cards slammed against the table, let's talk about L.A. Confidential. Heavy spoiler warning for the entire film coming up, because we're diving in real deep. Let's start with the plot. L.A. Confidential is a 1997 film directed by Curtis Hansen, co-written by Hansen and Brian Hegeland, who in a fun note for millennials also wrote and directed A Knight's Tale, based off of James Elroy's 1990 novel of the same name. 
The plot features three disparate police officers in the LAPD in 1953, who all find their personal morals challenge when they unravel a criminal conspiracy to fill a power void left after, after the gangster Mickey Cohen is put in jail for income tax evasion. We've got the righteously angry Bud White, played by Russell Crowe, the celebrity cop Jack Vincennes, played by he who shall not be named, and the newbie looking to make a name for himself, Edmund Exley, played by Guy Pearce. Everything is kicked off in, after a very real police incident called Bloody Christmas, where Bud and Jack end up slugging two alleged criminals in front of reporters, and Ed agrees to testify against them. But things get more complicated when a former cop and about a dozen other people are brutally murdered in a cafe called the Night Owl. While Bud and Ed seemingly bring the responsible parties to justice by shooting them to death, the trail of bodies and a lot of covered up evidence indicate something bigger is at play. And Jack gets the notion that maybe he's been doing the wrong thing with his police power, after an actor he busted for drugs is found murdered. Meanwhile, Bud White, who has been working as an enforcer in a police unit aimed against would-be mo mobsters, starts a romantic relationship with a called girl named Lynn Bracken, played by Kim Basinger. Soon, Ed and Jack team up to reinvestigate the Night Owl case, a drug dealer pimped named Pierce Patchett, who specializes in call girls surgically altered to look like movie stars and the murdered actor Jack wants to investigate, but the department is ignoring, since the actor was bisexual. But when Jack is murdered, it's up to Bud and Ed to team up and find out who's responsible. They ultimately discover that the police chief, Dudley, played by a never more threatening James Cromwell, who was like a year removed from Babe at this point, is working with a bunch of former cops, criminals, and even Danny DeVito's sleazy tabloid writer, or as we'd call it now, a standard DeVito role, to take over Mickey Cohen's criminal enterprise. It all culminates in a gigantic shootout in an abandoned hotel as Bud and Ed kill all of Dudley's goons, Bud is badly wounded by Dudley, and a brief standoff between Ed and Dudley occurs. And finally, Ed kills Dudley by shooting him in the back with a shotgun before the police arrive. Unsure of what to do with the obvious institutional rot and PR nightmare, the LAPD decides to label Ed and Dudley as heroes who unravel the conspiracy, and the wounded Bud heads to Arizona with Lynn. We'll dig into the details more, but those are the broad strokes, and uh, they're very detailed broad strokes. The film is easily categorized as a neo-noir, thanks in part to its unflinching look at LA's underbelly in the 1950s, numerous scenes of graphic violence, and a mountain of messed up language either via profanity or slurs. It's also incredibly well shot, with period-appropriate recreations of 50s wardrobe and locations, a blend of visual styles that films feels less like film noir and old-school Hollywood slamming into each other. The performances are near-career best across the board for the main cast, and even aspects you'd expect to be lacking, like the shootouts, are expertly staged and shot. The final shootout in the abandoned hotel is a go-to example of how a thriller can stage a fantastic action beat for its finale without being an action movie. It also came from a very unlikely source, writer-director Curtis Hansen. So let's talk about Curtis Hansen. The dearly departed Curtis Hansen's work is hard to pin down, because the man shifted between genres seemingly at will. 
After writing an adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's The Dunwich Horror in 1970, Hansen's filmography is a roller coaster ride between genres, including a Roger Corman B movie called Sweet Kill in 1972, and a sex comedy called Losing It in 1983, with some guy named Tom Cruise in the cast, before seemingly finding a niche in the late 80s. From 1987 to 1994, Hansen directed four movies, three of which Wikipedia describes as psychological thrillers and I would too. They are The Bedroom Window, Bad Influence, and the box office smash The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, and an adventure movie that plays like a psychological thriller called The River Wild with Meryl Streep, Kevin Bacon, a young John C. Riley, and eventual LA Confidential player David Strahan. While it's hard to say that these are the definitive Hanson movies, they do establish themes and elements he liked to make movies about. He's very interested in character dynamics and watching how flawed people bounce off one another in stressful situations or when bad actors come calling. He also seems to avoid a central lead character and prefers true ensemble movies versus one lead and still has the chops to give each character a proper arc. And in 1997, Hansen delivered the best movie of his career with LA Confidential and won an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay, which we will get into what he adapted, it's even more impressive. He later went on to direct some less successful dramedies like Wonder Boys in 2000, In Her Shoes in 2005, Lucky You in 2007, and the dark comedy Too Big to Fail in 2011 for HBO. Of course, the reason I can't say LA Confidential is Hansen's most successful movie is because he also directed 8 Mile. Yeah, the Eminem biopic in Everything But Name. While I have to admit, switching between LA Confidential and 8 Mile is such whiplash. Not only because the story is less fantastic, but he was clearly operating with a lot of inexperienced or non-actors, and the visuals in the film are so green and high contrast compared to the glossy LA Confidential, it's kind of amazing. He legit went from filming classy jazz clubs to filming underground rap battles with equal levels of effectiveness in less than a decade. That's no easy feat. Unfortunately, Hansen was never able to replicate that level of success and released his final movie, a surfing film called Chasing Mavericks with Gerard Butler in 2012, which he had to quit directing due to ill health before passing in 2016. It's always difficult to track the influence of a filmmaker like Hansen, not because he wasn't talented, but because he never specialized in one kind of film or had a high-profile partnership with a big-name actor. The most noteworthy element with Hansen is his eye for acting talent. In LA Confidential, he gave breakout Hollywood roles to two actors that still appear in Hollywood films to this day, Guy Pearce and Russell Crowe. While his other movies include early roles for future stars and Oscar winners like the aforementioned Tom Cruise, Julianne Moore, and John C. Riley. Hansen's career reminds me a lot of fellow American filmmaker Jonathan Demme a highly capable director who skillfully drifted between, between, between genres and produced an all-time classic Oscar-winning crime film based on a popular novel smack dab in the middle of their career. For Demi, it was The Silence of the Lambs, and for Hansen, that was LA Confidential. But there is a big difference between the two. Demi didn't write or adapt Silence of the Lambs. Hansen did. And it's easy to see why Hansen and co-writer Brian Hegeland won the Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar, especially if you know anything about James Elroy's novels. So now we have to talk about adaptation. Not the movie, but rather adapting a book like L.A. Confidential. The Art of Adaptation 
I understand why the Oscars have two categories for screenplays. For a long time, the category was a singular category for writing, which meant someone who adapted one of the best novels of all time had just as good a chance as someone who crafted an idea on their own to win in the same category, and that's messy and potentially disheartening. What I find interesting is how Best Adapted Screenplay typically goes to the film with the best script. Maybe not the film that did the best job with the actual adaptation. That may sound strange, but I'll give you an example. You could conceivably have a straight adaptation of Heart of Darkness and Apocalypse Now compete with each other against each other for Oscars. And while Heart of Darkness might be great, what do you think is a more interesting adaptation? As another example, Taika Waititi recently won a Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar for Jojo Rabbit, for a film that looked almost nothing like the book that was its springboard. I bring this up because Hansen and his co-writer Brian Hegeland put together an amazing adaptation of James Elroy's novel that makes it just sleazy enough to be interesting without being inaccessible, which is no easy feat if you know anything about James Elroy and his work. James Elroy has been writing novels since 1981, and is most famous for his crime novels, including the L.A. Quartet, which includes L.A. Confidential and The Black Dahlia, all fictional stories using real events and players from Los Angeles's sordid past. His novels are dense with detail, feature rapid-fire dialogue full of period-appropriate vernacular, and are unapologetically violent, graphic, and nihilistic. They are also quite long and take numerous CD detours seemingly for the sake of shock value. For an example that has and will stick with me forever, the Black Dahlia features an entire detour where the main character goes to a strip bar in Tijuana, where a room full of men circle jerk to a donkey show. The scene is described in vivid detail and has no real bearing on the story outside of the character's loneliness and sadness in this moment not exactly a scene you can or should adapt for the big screen. What I'm trying to say is his novels present challenges for adaptation, because how much story are in his stories and the myriad of ways you can get lost in the wrong directions. The Black Dahlia adaptation by Brian De Palma is a great example of this. That movie is so interested in the mystery and the style that it loses track of the characters and themes. The plot is the driving force versus the characters. Likewise, Elroy's cynical approach means heroes or relatable characters are hard to find. Everyone's awful, everything's awful. This pretty place is as ugly as it's been made out to be for the last 50 years, and every song about broken dreams and every version of A Star is Born since the 30s. I think we're up to four or five now. Hansen's own comments about the book are pretty telling. He said he initially didn't like anybody in the novel, but found himself caring about the characters the more he read, which, hey, that's kind of what happens in the movie. He clearly realized that the characters were the most interesting part of this story, and the film reflects that. The fact that Hansen and Hegeland were able to thread the needle is nothing short of a minor miracle. Because LA Confidential has amazing characters, feels simultaneously beautiful and horrific in a very honest way, feels period appropriate at every turn, and manages to provide hope in some humans to go with its healthy cynicism of institutions and the golden age of Hollywood. Of course, we're ignoring a giant elephant-sized genre in the room that definitely inspired Elroy's novels and LA Confidential, film noir, which is noir on steroids. I have lovingly called LA Confidential Noir on Steroids, which is great if you happen to be down with the historical movie lingo, but can get confusing. So what is film noir? 
Film noir is the term broadly used for Hollywood crime dramas mostly produced in the 40s and 50s that were inspired by German expressionist film of the 20s in visual style and theme. They were often adapted from crime novels that became very popular during the Great Depression, and as you'd expect from the material from the material written in that area, very cynical outlooks on the world, power structures, and trusted authorities. The term was introduced in the mid-40s by French critic Nino Frank, but only came into common use when film studies became a thing in the 70s. Basically, by the time people started calling movies noir in their reviews and analysis, the genre's heyday had come and gone. A lot of these movies weren't highly respected either, at least at the time. For most critics of the era, they were melodramas or cheap, twisty commercial fun for grown-ups. And while there's a lot of movies people consider noirs, like Double Indemnity and The Maltese Falcon, there's still a lot of debate over what a noir is. But it does have a lot of stylistic elements and tropes that you've probably seen parodied a thousand times, and said tropes include... Voiceover narration from the lead character, an anti-hero who's drawn into a world of crime, femme fatales, hookers with a heart of gold, corrupt police, flashbacks taking place mostly at night, greed, criminal investigation, private eyes, every cigarette known to man, a collection of characters that shouldn't be trusted, a cynical attitude, a downer ending, ambiguous morals, final shootouts in dark places, shadows, and on and on and on. <sighs> and you get your LA Confidential bingo card handy, because you know that movie hits almost all of these boxes, because... <sighs> The entire driving thrust of the film is a criminal conspiracy that involves organized crime in the Los Angeles Police Department. All of our lead characters are some kind of anti-hero and do questionable things with, and do what they believe is right. Our only major female character is a little hooker who has a heart of gold. Most of the movie's action takes place at night. We get a final shootout at night in an abandoned hotel. There's a lot of smoking on screen. There's also a lot of murder and people trying to solve murders. Okay. And if you apply that with modern film sensibilities, that would be enough to get a ver be a very solid neo-noir. But I'm not claiming that LA Confidential is noir on steroids because it's good neo-noir. I'm saying that because of what this movie escalates. So let's start with violence. Violence in noirs and neo-noirs is part of the deal. Since so many of these plots revolve around criminals, there's a good chance people are going to get beat up, stabbed, and shot. Hell, this might all happen to the lead character by the time the movie is done. In classic noirs, it's often implied or melodramatic. In neo-noirs, there might be some blood depending on the rating but the violence in LA Confidential is horrific. The most obvious example is the night owl murder scene, which looks like the glimpse of the bloody hallway in The Shining, where blood covers almost every surface, and the group of bodies are apparently so terrible to look at, the camera looks away. All we see is Ed's reaction, and he's clearly overwhelmed. And that's just one scene, and one example of how pervasively violent this movie is. We see people's bodies torn apart by shotgun blasts, violent interrogations where people are bloodied or have guns stuck in their mouths. And so many scenes in this movie start or end with a main character discovering a corpse with a bullet hole in their head or a cut throat. And considering that the majority of the people doling out this violence are police, it's especially disturbing. And this amplified take on noir tropes doesn't stop there. While many noirs portray corrupt police officers or criminals, LA Confidential portrays the entire Los Angeles Police Department as rotten to the core. All of the higher-ups are worried about politics, most of the cops are inherently racist and reactionary, and by the film's end we realize that the line between cop and criminal has been eliminated, minus a few men trying their best to do the right thing. Of course, this is only a temporary fix that the department glosses over with propaganda, but we'll get to that later. There's also a ton of surface-level elements that make this the most noir, neo-noir you can imagine. 
We get voiceover work from Danny DeVito's tabloid journalist, a lot of era-specific fast-talking references to drugs, homosexuality that would have been implied in old noirs, and perhaps the film's most ingenious element, three central characters who all fit noir hero stereotypes sharing the screen. And with that, let's talk about Ed, Buck, and Jack. Our heroes. So before we get started, I will address the elephant in the room, which is simple. Jack Finsens is played by one Kevin, and that automatically makes any project he's attached to feel a bit off. So please note that when I'm talking about said actor, his career, his performance, this is in no way a defense of his actions. He did a ton of awful things that he's currently on trial for, and I'm not here to say that you should forget about that, because I really like this movie. This is my assessment of his career and his contribution to this movie, and that's it. So, without further ado, let's continue. The three leads in this movie are three cops in the Los Angeles Police Department. Guy Pierce plays Edmund Exley, an idealistic newbie whose dad was killed on the job and is looking to climb the department's ladder to make a difference, specifically in the detective unit. Russell Crowe plays Bud White, a violently angry man who grew up in an abusive household and takes out all of his rage on criminals, or sadly, people he believes are criminals. And the actor who shall not be named plays Jack Vincennes, a vice cop who enjoys a bit of extra cash and celebrity by posing for staged busts of famous actors for a sleazy tabloid and advising on a show that is definitely Dragnet, or <laughs> definitely Dragnet, even if it's not called Dragnet. Which is doubly interesting in the history of Copaganda, but again, later. And each of these characters is a standard noir hero stock type, complete with their fatal flaw. Pierce's Edmund Exley is the idealist who's blinded by ego. When we first meet him, he looks like the good guy amongst all of those bad apples we've heard so much about. He's happily working desk duty on Christmas Eve while half the department is getting liquored up. Though even then, he's being interviewed by the local paper. He also tries in vain to prevent Bloody Christmas from happening and tells his superior, Chief Dudley, James Cromwell, that he won't operate outside the law in the detective unit. Dudley even lists off a bunch of unsavory things Exley's job may ask him to do, but he doesn't back down. Remember this, because this is important for later. That first glimpse of Ed makes it easy to ignore his actions, like agreeing to testify against his fellow officers and advising the LAPD leadership on how to handle the situation as self-serving. He's trying to make the LAPD better by using his brain and the leverage he has, but in hindsight, this is the first glimpse of Ed's fatal flaw peeking through. Because as much as Ed may have joined the police force to be a positive influence, he very quickly jumps at the chance to be viewed as highly competent or heroic by the public or his fellow police officers. One rough murder case and the formerly pacifist Ed is participating in psychologically damaging interrogations and in retrospect his worst moment, gunning down a bunch of black men with a shotgun who didn't commit the crime he was trying to solve. He sees a cop who shot, a cop we later find out was dirty as hell, and very obviously started the lethal shootout to cover his tracks, and goes red, clearly only aiming to kill. There's a little detail in this scene that I love, which is the normally bespectacled Ed leaves his glasses in the car before the big shootout, something that Chief Dudley said make him, made him look weak, as he literally loses sight of his morals and what's really going on. He also takes off the glasses for a photo for the papers, because ego. It's a great touch and visual reinforcement of the scene's theme. Ed is every noir hero who starts off as a good man and loses sight of himself because of greed and ego. He liked being a hero so much, he accepted the narrative. 
and when Ed finally gets a good look in the mirror and some perspective, he doesn't like what he sees. It's here that he finally joins up with Jack, who's having a moral crisis of his own. It's also here where Ed reveals the reason he became a cop, Rolo Tomasi. This absurd name that sounds like a pasta dish and is also the name of a metal band now, is a representation of Ed's true guiding principle, justice. Actual justice. It's the name he gave the purse snatcher who shot and killed his father in the line of duty. It was about getting the guy who gets away with it. It was supposed to be about justice, he tells Jack. Ed's polar opposite in terms of demeanor and style is Russell Crowe's Bud White, who is the angriest man in the world. He's literally introduced by pulling down Christmas lights, then punching an abusive man's lights out, and it's very easy to piece together how Bud ended up this way. He wears his trauma on his sleeve via his anger. He watched his father constantly abuse his mother and now wants to take out all of his hate and anger on other people who hurt women. He's portrayed like an uncaged animal who will burst through restraints and can hit harder than anyone you know, the ultimate bad guy. But he's also, also sympathetic. Even if you're not an eye for an eye kind of guy, it's easy to get behind a wife beater getting beaten in kind. Of course, that rage also blinds him, both to how his rage and loyalty is being used by other police officers and his alleged friends for their benefit. He is incredibly loyal and seems to view his fellow police officers as his family, which isn't great since most of them are awful, and it's why he and Ed clash so violently from the start. He supports the blue wall of silence and seems to view his job as a righteous hammer of justice. The ends always justify the means and he does not like being challenged on that. After he kills an unarmed man, Ed rightly points out the Dr. Crime scene and asks, how's it going to look in your report? And he responds bitterly, it'll look like justice. Which is wrong, and only becomes clear after he's asked to brutalize one gangster after another by his own police chief. You can't run on hate and anger alone, and eventually the violence becomes purposeless white noise. He's not satisfied with this role, and it's the first sign that there's a soft side under that hard exterior. That soft side finally opens up when he meets a woman who isn't turned off by his rough edges, Kim Basinger's Lynn Bracken, and allows himself to be vulnerable and rethink his violent violence first approach. Of course, there are a lot of noir heroes who become their worst selves when women get involved, but we'll get to that soon. The key here is that this is the first person not wearing a badge that Bud is able to care about and it fundamentally changes him. So that's our centerpiece duo, Ed and Bud. And Guy Pearce and Russell Crowe are so good in these roles. They have completely disparate energies, which is what the film needs. Ed needs to be too smart to see his own ego clouding his judgment, and Crowe is a perfect fit as a blunt instrument trying to be something more complex. It makes their eventual partnership dramatically and thematically satisfying. Which makes it even crazier when you imagine that producer Arnon Micklin wasn't thrilled on Curtis Hansen's casting choices for these two roles. At this point, Guy Pearce was best known for the drag queen movie The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, with Hugo Weaving, a movie Hansen apparently intentionally avoided to prevent it from shading his opinion of Pearce's audition, and Russell Crowe was tagged thanks to his performance as a violent neo-Nazi in Romper Stomper. Milken has, was concerned that audiences wouldn't care about a movie with two Australians, but he allowed Hansen's casting to stand. Of course, it's doubly funny, since Russell Crowe later won an Oscar, playing a character just like this four years later in Gladiator, and Guy Pearce is malleable enough of a performer to be in every kind of movie under the sun. And two, Pearce has cheekily pointed out that he's technically British and Crowe is technically a New Zealander. 
Still, I'm so glad that these two actors were chosen and given a chance to bring their talents to a Hollywood movie. And finally, we get to Jack. So Jack Vincennes is the LAPD's celebrity cop. Jack is the amoral noir hero who starts off only interested in himself with no regard for how he affects other people. He ruins actors' careers for a little publicity and extra cash in scenes that were definitely set up to sell papers, and uses his police position for a job he really wants, advising on a hit television show called Badge of Honor. He's ego incarnate, and in a nice parallel, a character Ed believes himself to be above, when in actuality, Jack is more honest and aware of his motivations. While there's no obvious harm in advising on a TV show, regardless of what your job is, Jack's obvious moral failing is his inability to see the damage his stings cause. He ruins careers and lives for a little extra cash and fame, which he doesn't seem to need. He's the only detective who dresses in a crisp white suit and seems to be on a first-name basis with movie stars. He doesn't need this. But he does it anyway, for fame and money. And he's finally confronted with this when a young actor he busted is used in another sting operation and subsequently murdered. The scene is suitably heartbreaking because Jack is essentially giving him a pep talk to ruin his life again. It's just so fucking sad. And it's sad and tragic enough to wake Jack up. Jack is probably the simplest in terms of motivation, since he only looks out for himself and then grows a soul. But again, a lot of noir heroes start that way. He also gets to comment that he doesn't even remember why he became a cop when he and Ed start working together, a great way to hammer home that he's been running on this awful autopilot for years. It's useful for my analysis that Jack is the least interesting of the three characters, and is mostly around to fill in plot points and provide a different type. But I'd be lying if the actor we're not going to name was a defactor. Since Pierce and Crow were technically the film's leads and 90s movies needed stars, the inclusion of actors like Kim Basinger, who was heavily featured on every poster and the front of every home video release, Danny DeVito, and a recent Oscar winner, like th which this guy was, thanks to the usual suspects. His presence is probably what got a lot of people in the seats to see this period neo-noir over 25 years after Chinatown came out. So those are our three leads, each noir archetype, each very flawed, each living their separate lives for much of the movie. The key for all three men is that they hit a breaking point, all around the same time. The Turns Ed's wake-up call comes during what should be his victory lap. He's helping a woman, who was captured and assaulted by the men he killed, out of the hospital. But she slips and then makes a confession. She lied about when the men Exley killed left her, which means that they couldn't have committed the Night Owl murders. As heartbreaking as her admission is that the police wouldn't care about the men who abused her, a Latino woman, if they didn't also kill white people, it also means that the Night Owl case isn't closed. And for someone who got into this for justice, this is why Ed needs to re-examine this case. This revelation interrupts an event that should be pleasing to his ego, another front-page story for hotshot detective Edmund Exley. But instead, all he can think about is that his image is a lie, and he's no better than the LAPD itself, or Jack. He gets a startling reminder that the Night Owl has its own Rolo Tomasi to take down. When the journalists ask Exley if, if Exley is this woman's hero, Ed can't bear to smile or remove his glasses. It's like he just sobered up. So it makes sense that Ed decides to pair up with Jack, who just had his revelation. And it is very important and telling that these two men immediately put themselves in more danger the same moment they decide to question the official story and do the right thing. 
Meanwhile, Bud is starting to question his motivation. There's not a single moment that does it for him, but the combination of Lin's love, the white noise of each gangster beating starting to horrify him, and something in his gut that tells him something isn't right puts him and Ed on parallel paths. He too realizes that the Night Owl case isn't closed. I love this section because Bud and Ed still hate each other and view each other with suspicion while they retrace one another's investigation. Hell, Ed basically forces himself on Lynn because he cannot believe she sees anything in Bud, but the audience and our heroes realize too late who the real enemy is. When Jack does some digging, he comes across something troubling, that all of the ex-cops involved in these crimes who either died, likely killed someone, or ended up dead themselves, all worked for Captain Dudley. And trying to do the right thing, Jack brings this to Dudley's attention to ask him some questions. And Dudley shoots him in the heart. As shocking and sad as this was, it's Jack's final words that give him a proper heroic send-off. He says one phrase to warn Ed, Rolo Tomasi. So when, it's revealed, so when Dudley reveals that Jack was killed and Ed asks, asks about Rolo Tomasi, it all clicks for Ed. He knows who his target is. Unfortunately, Dudley and company are trying to play Bud's worst impulses one last time and give him photos of Ed and Lynn. I won't go into this too much, but what I will say is that in a moment of rage and hurt, Bud briefly becomes the thing he hates most and wants to take out all of that misplaced rage on Ed. Dudley and his goons are counting on it, and it takes Ed pleading through a beating to think things through and get the evidence they need. And even now, Bud is suspicious. He asks Ed, the Night Owl made you, do you really want to tear that down? And Ed finally hands Bud an olive branch and says, with a wrecking ball, he says, want to help me swing it? And finally, we have our buddy cop movie. By, and by buddy cop movie, I mean this pair starts using all of the corrupt police tactics against the police. So now it's a good time to talk about copaganda. Copaganda. After the surge in Black Lives Matter protests, there's been a large media criticism movement to address copaganda, which is a loose term for any TV show, movie, or other media that reinforce police talking points. What I think is amazing is how, historically, cops were not viewed or portrayed with the same level of respect as they are now. In early film, cops were portrayed as drunken, bumbling idiots who were constantly outsmarted by clever criminals or subject to a series of slapstick mishaps, see the often-referenced Keystone Cops. But the portrayal of police changed forever with the television show Dragnet. If you'd like a more in-depth look at the show's origins and impact, I highly recommend video essayist Skip Intro's look at the series, and frankly his entire copaganda series. To summarize, Dragnet presented a highly competent, highly moral vision of the police who were the last line of defense against a turning tide of immoral young criminals, made with input and approval from the LAPD. And interestingly enough, the show was specifically created with the LAPD's blessing to refurbish their image after the real-life bloody Christmas incident. And the majority of television and movies about police have reinforced this idea, and other ideas, see the necessity for using force or breaking the law to catch criminals for decades since. Of course, the history of the LAPD tells us that this vision of unbreakable morality and values was never true. Hence why Jack Vincennes, a knowingly corrupt officer who makes personal profit off of set-up busts for the camera, is the LAPD police consultant on LA Confidential's fake dragnet, Badge of Honor. So where does LA Confidential fall on the copaganda scale? Does it glorify the police, or does it critique the institution of policing? Generally speaking, this movie is not in favor of the police. 
Unlike a lot of its cop movie counterparts, LA Confidential has a grim view of the LAPD as an institution, whose biggest flaws are represented by our three lead characters even before the massive corruption scandal comes to light. Jack Vincennes is a drug cop who makes the police look good on TV, rubs elbows with movie stars, and gets his name in the paper for big busts on stars who are out of control. But the reality is that Jack is nothing like the character he provides insight on. He takes bribes for his big busts. Said busts are complete setups to sell papers and put the police in a good light, and feels comfortable pocketing drugs he busted someone for five seconds ago. Not only that, but he has no regard for the people he's putting away and the lives he's ruining. The parallels between Jack's actions and over-policing in the enforcement of drug crimes, specifically black Americans, aren't hard to make. And the only reason Jack is ever disciplined is because his work on the show can be leveraged after he, after he slugs a man in holding during the Bloody Christmas incident. Bud White and Ex Edmund Exley are a little bit different because we know that, at least theoretically, they have good intentions, but they are easily corrupted by the larger police organization. At first glance, it is easy to justify Bud's violent outbursts, because even though he's a cop, he's only seen being violent towards people who hurt women. But the justification for Bud's violence is constantly upended and put into more damning lights the more we see it. Bud is one of the major players in the Bloody Christmas incident. He holds a loaded weapon to a young man's head in his mouth during an interrogation. He even shoots an unarmed man and stages a crime scene. All of which is either accepted as a normal day at the office or expected behavior by Captain Dudley. And then there's Ed, who is a perfect example of how a good cop can become a bad one, or at least one that is used by the institution to cover up its own failures and corruption. Despite not taking Dudley's bait to do unsavory things to get justice, Ed does fall hook, line, and sinker for the first suspects he's given, and ends up shooting numerous men who had nothing to do with the Night Owl murders. Granted, this gets a bit grayer when Bud and Ed team up. While Bud solo and Jack and Ed separately have been doing good detective work, asking questions, following leads, getting evidence, once Jack dies and Ed and Bud team up, things get a bit off the rails. As soon as Ed and Bud team up, they lean very heavily on the familiar good cop, bad cop tactic, with Edmund kindly asking questions, and Bud threatening their lives and physically abusing them, with Ed insisting that they can be spared if they cough up what they know. While it makes some sense that they have to operate outside of the system, considering that Dudley is their adversary, it's still police violence for the sake of justice. And then the shootout happens. After both parties get a bad tip, Ed and Bud find themselves cornered in a shady motel when they realize they've walked into an ambush. And in a metaphor so on the nose it hurts, our two good, good cops have to fight for their lives against an army of nameless corrupt policemen who want them dead, and they are very nearly killed. Bud is shot twice, and Ed is only saved thanks to Bud's heroic intervention when Dudley has the upper hand. And Ed and Dudley stand off, and Dudley says, it's fine, they can play all of this off and to hold up your badge so they know you're a policeman. And in a split second, our alleged paragon Ed shoots Dudley in the back with a shotgun as he pulls out his badge as the cars arrive. It is very telling that it requires a bad cop's heroic death and two good cops essentially going to war with their own department and using the LAPD's brutal tactics against itself and most notably of all, of all the things D Dudley asked Edmund to do, violent interrogations, planting evidence, and the like, is against Dudley's men, including shooting a man you know to be guilty in the back, just like Dudley wanted him to do at the beginning of the movie. 
And despite all of this bad behavior, the most damning portrait of the police may be the review board scenes. Now we have to get into the how the police police themselves. One of the biggest critiques you can levy at modern police departments is that they are constantly waging a PR battle seemingly against their communities. Whenever something awful happens, it is almost always portrayed as an isolated incident, not an institutional failure. And LA Confidential argues, it's always been like this. And the review board scenes are a painful demonstration of this. The first comes immediately after the bloody Christmas disaster. The focus, based on the words being spoken all around, is that the department needs to make an example of some people to satiate the public. While not really doing anything else about it, there's no talk of doing anything differently, just how do we make the public happy? Or rather, whose heads do we give them? Bud refuses to talk because cops don't talk about other cops, the blue wall of silence. He won't give up his partner to save his skin, despite the audience being told and seeing that his partner is a piece of shit. But Bud believes in the police, so he takes his discipline on the chin without saying a word. Ed has no problem talking and volunteers some ideas to get others to talk. Of course, he wants compensation for it, can't snitch just for the sake of it. Jack agrees to snitch only after his work on the show is threatened and only agrees to tell on men who have already had their pensions lined up. And the audience? never hears about Bloody Christmas again. It's gone, forgotten, and in fact, replaced by the outrage over the death of a cop who we find is work find out was working for criminals and sanctioned policed violence against minorities. It's all fine until Ed kills Dudley. With Ed in bandages, we hear the same board fr from before frantically trying to think of something to do to cover their ass, because they can't tell the public that Dudley was trying to take over the criminal enterprise in Los Angeles, that's suicide for the department, and Ed gives them what they need, a hero. Actually, two. After everything Ed and Bud went through, Ed knows the institution will only do what's best for it, which means Ed gets to be a hero once again, and Dudley... Dudley was heroically killed in the line of duty, at least according to the police. As Ed says, they're using me, so for now, I'm using them. The LAPD doesn't leave this movie change for the better, it remains the same. The story was an outlier. So what can we conclude? I love LA Confidential for a lot of reasons. Some are nostalgic, others are stylistic, and others are information that the average viewer won't have. I don't expect everyone who watches this movie to know James McElroy's novels or have a deep knowledge about film noir, but it's easy to get swept up in this half-fictional, half-real vision of Los Angeles' seedy past that resonates into the present day. While it may not have any answers, it is refreshing to have an acclaimed movie of its nature from more than 20 years ago that views problems with policing as conscious and persistent institutional failures, not the failures of one or two bad men and perhaps we have to break rules or work outside the system to make things right. But the core of why the movie works and why the movie sticks with me is that it demonstrates three men's ability to change for the better. With Jack, we see it's never too late to reform and become the heroic ideal you've been pretending to be. With Bud, we can see we can buck expectations and use our gifts, be the an ungodly amount of anger at the world or fist like a sledgehammer for good. We can be our own guide, discover our softer side, and determine our own destiny. And with Ed, we can get permission to screw up, recover, and be the person you intended to be. When confronted with his own ego and failings, Ed admits how far he's fallen and says his work was supposed to be about justice. And by the film's end, we see it still can be. 
This has been Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to join our Facebook group, Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie World, for the latest reviews, discussions, and more. See you next time, everybody, and stay safe. Thank you.